Black and white and red all over. Ian Murta. He can talk football all day. Didn't someone once say that football was a funny old game? Well, they were light, weren't they? I mean, let's face it, Sunderland, they've lost the last two games. And yet, I would imagine that right now, Mackham's up possibly the happiest fan base among all of us. Because, well, let's not get personal, but Michael Beale's gone. And that's lifted a bit of the gloom around Wearside. You know, the club, it's, it's resetting itself again after a pretty turbulent few weeks. Newcastle, well... Newcastle, they've put together a pretty decent unbeaten run, but you've had the Dan Ashworth saga. They can't win at home these days. And then you've also got the situation whereby another late 8 o'clock kickoff, 8 o'clock in London for the for the Toon Army. They can't get back by train. It's not the first time it's happened this season. It's not the last time. So there's a few frustrations in that fan base. Our Middlesbrough fans, well, for heaven's sake, they don't know what to think, do they? Can they play Leicester every week? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, they beat Leicester whenever they play them. I mean, we all made fools of ourselves in our predictions last week. We all wrote <laughs> off Middlesbrough, but it was a tremendous result, wasn't it? Unfortunately, they're playing a run-of-the-mill side this week, and Middlesbrough's downfall this season has been playing run-of-the-mill sides at home. And uh, I'm at the Middlesbrough-Plymouth game. I'd love to say it's a home win, but... Well, that's what I thought against Bristol City. That's what everyone thought against Bristol City a week or two ago. But that didn't happen. So, you know, as I say, Middlesbrough, they're only consistent in their inconsistency. Mm. We are the absolute masters of grabbing uh, defeat from the jaws of success. That's how I describe it, us. You, you, you play... I, I was... Ian, I was positive last week, ahead of last weekend. I was, I was very positive that Borough were going to get turned over big style. <laughs> and um, and look what happened. So, I don't know. I'll be there tomorrow, but I'll just be scratching my head for 90 minutes wondering what's next. Well, listen, it's a very simple team talk. Michael Carrick has to give those players, if you can do it against Leicester, you can do it against every single championship side. That's all you need to say. Yeah, and, and look what they've done. They went to Elland Road. They lost by 1-3-2. Uh, they took on Chelsea at the Riverside and beat them. They gave Aston Villa a real run for the money, losing out to a, a very late, late goal. Um, they did Leicester at the Riverside. They've done Leicester at uh, at their place at the King Power. Yet, mm. yet they can't beat Rotherham, who were rock bottom of the table. It's just, it's just it's remarkable. Bizarre. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's a, it's a story of Northeast football. Listen, Dave. Since 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 uh, the uh, Black, White, Red all over show was launched last August, I, I've I felt proud of one thing that we have given equal prominence to all three of our clubs. Now, I work in the national media and I, I think the national media, it overlooks the, the championship too much. It, it, it's too Premier League obsessed. But what we tend to do is we give as much prominence to Middlesbrough and Sunderland as we do to Newcastle. Anyway, last week we had an exclusive interview with Steve Howey. We focused on Middlesbrough and Sunderland very heavily the previous week and I thought, what, what should I do this week? And then I came... I looked through my contacts and I stopped at A. And I thought, well, this guy's well qualified. So I've only I've only managed to get an interview with a man with a foot in every single camp in the whole of the Northeast. In fact, Steve Agnew, he didn't know it himself, but he, he's a, a bit of a history maker. He's played for Sunderland, 
he's coached at Newcastle, he's coached and managed at Middlesbrough, and just for good measure, he kicked off his coaching career with spells at Gateshead and Hartlepool. So fascinating to talk to the multi-travelled Steve Agnew. Well, Steve, I think you're the first guest of mine who's actually got strong links with the region's three big clubs. But I've been doing a little bit of research, you know, and this might surprise you, but I think that you're the only man in history to have either played for or coached at the North East's five top clubs, Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Gateshead, Hartlepool. Did you realise that? Uh, no, not really. Now we say that, Ian, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, an, an enjoyable times at every one of the clubs, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were eventful. And uh, obviously, we'll we'll discuss your time at uh, on Teesside, Wearside and Tyneside. And of course, you. The, when I first got to know you was when you joined Peter Reid Sunderland from Leicester, wasn't it? Way, uh, back in 1995. In 95, that's right, yeah. I came up, uh, I think it was January, Mick Buxton was the manager that signed me. Oh, it was Mick, and, that's um, right, yes. Yeah, and Mick then left uh, not long after that, and then obviously Peter Reid came in, and um, we finished the season, I think I got injured actually towards the end of that season. But then once we got underway the following season, uh, that was that was an amazing season for all of us that uh, Reedy did such a great job. Fans got behind it all and we ended up with a promotion in that first season. And of course, and, uh, and it, there was, it was the uh, the season of Cheer Up Peter Reed, wasn't it? Which I think is one of the last <laughs> football songs to hit the top 40. He <laughs> uh, was, yeah. Well, I think that just shows that that was driven by their supporters, wasn't it? And uh, That's right. Know, just the, the, the passion for the club and... Um, you, you know, I don't know how long Sunderland, I think, had had a cup final in the early 90s, but obviously with a club that size that's probably just not had um, success for a number of seasons, then when Reedy brought that, then all that comes along with it. Uh, and there was, it was just a, an amazing season, really. Uh, you know, fantastic um, support, management, uh, Bobby Saxton, Peter Reed. Paul Bracewell was the player coach, and then obviously the, the the players, you know, all the players in the dressing room were just uh, all great people, really. That, well, I think you, you formed some uh, uh, lifetime friendships from your time uh, there, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, Martin Scott was, uh, you know, he's from Sheffield originally, and I'm from Barnsley, so we were close. We didn't particularly know each other then, but... Uh, that connection kept uh, kept us close and, and remained friends ever since. Um, you know, so uh, and, and Scotty still still lives, um, you know, in the, in the northeast. And what are your recollections of Peter Reid? Of course, at the time of your uh, of your tenure at Sunderland, it was when the first fly in the wall documentary was being aired, uh, Premier Passions, and and everyone uh, realised what a good Anglo-Saxon Peter Reid was with his use of language. <laughs> yeah, well, Reedy was when he came, when he came in. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think maybe he was in his late thirties, and he got into management early at Man City, and That's he just right. came in with this this enthusiasm that rubbed right throughout the, the squad on a daily basis. And obviously, a lot of respect. All the players had a lot of respect for Peter Reed, not just as a as a manager at Manchester City, but also as a as a player. He was a top player, wasn't he, with Everton and. England international and so on. Um, 
so well respected, uh, highly motivated. You could see from day one his intention was to get Sunderland back into the Premier League. And, and of course, Bobby Saxton alongside him was an experienced football coach that had also managed. And, and he just had a great, yeah. a, a great partnership between them, great relationship uh, amongst the, the, the squad of players as well. Yeah, now Sunderland, they, they didn't survive that, that first season in the Premier League. I think they, they went down on the last day with defeat at Wimbledon. Now, then, of course, was the move to the Stadium of Light. I always associate you with Roker Park. Uh, did you play many games at the new stadium, Steve? No, I didn't, uh, Ian, but what happened was I played in the very first game against Manchester City mm-hmm. at the Stadium of Light, which we won, I think, 3-1. Three, one. Three, and one, then right, I had... I had this um, uh, niggling Achilles problem, which ultimately, uh, you know, kind of finished me really at Sunderland because I'd never recovered from it. Um, I played the early part of the season, I think, at Stadium Light. They got injured and I never played again, uh, which obviously was, uh, you know, disappointing from my point of view. Yes, I think I think you ended your career at, uh, at York City, didn't you? Yeah, I went down to York. When I got fit, uh, it was just down the road. And I did have yeah. offers for other parts of the country, but I didn't want to uproot the family when I was then maybe 32 or so. Um, so, so I went to York, and again, I had an enjoyable time down there. It's a good club in the football league at the time. Yeah. And then, if, then of course, you, you got on to your coaching career, which has been quite a distinguished career and uh, with uh, long longevity. And uh, you, you had uh, two spells at Middlesbrough, didn't it? You, you first of all, was it under Gareth Southgate that you, you worked? Yeah, well, I went in initially, and when I finished, when I was playing with Gateshead, um, I was kind of assistant manager, player assistant manager uh, with Gary Gill, and, and John yeah. Gibson, John Gibson was the chairman, and uh, and we had, a, I think we had a reasonable start of the season, but I was combining that with um, coaching at the Middlesbrough Academy, mm-hmm. so I was I was then starting to move obviously into the coaching uh, coaching world, but still playing a little bit. And then the Gateshead thing finished and uh, I spent more time, obviously, with Dave Parnaby at Middlesbrough Academy with the younger players. Um, Mm. And then I came back. I left to go to Leeds for a spell and then I came back, yeah, under Gareth. um, And I I think it was maybe 2007 as the under-20, under-21 coach. And, of course, uh, you worked closely with Gareth. Did you see him, though it was a, a difficult time at Middlesbrough, although I would never call Gareth's time at, at Middlesbrough a total failure because they had two decent seasons in the Premier League. And, of course, he didn't have the resources that Steve McLaren had. By that stage, Steve Gibson was cost-cutting. And uh, Gareth, he, he was managing with one hand tied behind his back at, uh, by the end, wasn't he? Well, you're right. He had two really good seasons at Middlesbrough for a you know for a manager or a player that came out of the dressing room. And but I think Steve Gibson obviously thought so highly of Gareth the way he is and the way he carries himself that you know he was appointed the manager and he did well initially. Um, as you say, um, where the resource was there, I, you know, I can't quite remember whether I was with the first team there or the under twenty ones. But it ended with the relegation. But Gareth was always, um, you know, I had a great relationship with him. He's gone on to be who I always thought he would be, a, a top, a top people coach. People say that, yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Level. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was speaking uh, the other day to uh, Danny Mills, 
and uh, you know who was very close to Gareth. I think they used to uh, share lifts from Harrogate every day into training, and he and he said that at the at the heart of Gareth's success with England is just the fact he's such a decent human being who treats footballers as adults, and it's it's almost impossible to dislike the man, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because Gareth has such a he's got time for everybody, you know, and. Uh... And, and obviously, his his man management skills of people are, are, are excellent. Um, and as as he's gone on to prove since he took over, not just the England under twenty one uh, role, which he was successful at, then then obviously uh, gone on to be the national team coach. Um, yeah, and uh, long may it continue for Gareth. Now, of course, you you were you you were back at Middlesbrough working with uh, Ito Karanka, who took Middlesbrough up. But again, it was a very very difficult return to top flight football with the the side quite defensive minded side under under Ito. How did that um, how how did that affect you? Because you your your coaching style was was a more attack driven uh, brand of football, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, um, you know, initially when when I joined uh, Middlesbrough with Ito, we uh, it was Christmas time actually, and we did well. And a lot of the work had gone in previous to, to, to myself being at the club with with Ito and his, his staff, and we ended up at the playoff final uh, against Norwich. So we're very Norwich. close, got beat. And the following season was an, an amazing season again in the championship where. Uh, really good team, good characters, good dress, everything, all the you know, all the ingredients really that that bring success, and and ultimately that ended up with a, an automatic promotion uh, from the Championship into the Premier League. The following season, obviously in the Premier League, it, it is tough as we as we all know. Uh, the resource uh, from from all the clubs is difficult to compete against. Um, but initially we had a, a decent start. I think up to Christmas we were okay. Um, and then we just fell away towards uh, you know February March time, um, which which was disappointing for for everybody for for all the Middlesbrough supporters for for the players and the staff. Um, and so uh, you know, let's just hope that Middlesbrough can get back into that Premier League uh, sooner rather than later. That's right, and of course uh, there were splits in the dressing room at, at the time when when Karanka left. You were you appointed caretaker manager with with. I think there were a good two months of the season to go. And I remember at the time, Steve, interviewing uh, Stuart Downing. And Stuart, I I distinctly remember what he said. He said, in all his time in football, and of course by that stage he was into his 30s and he had a distinguished career, he he called you the best coach he'd ever worked with. And I think he was... He was almost campaigning for you to get the job on a permanent basis. uh, You were quite non-committal, I remember, at the time, but... How did you see that that time at at Middlesbrough, which did end in relegation? Did it confirm to you that you were more a coach than a manager, or did it whet your appetite to become the front man? I think when when things in football, it's very difficult to you can plan from day one, and it, for some coaches, it comes their way where they have a natural progression from being a coach and assistant, and then obviously the number one position. But that's never really happened for me. It's always been a case of. Uh, you know, gone along with it, and then see what comes along. And and it, you know, looking back, it, it, I made mistakes. I know I did, but it was a very, very difficult um, position to take on um, for for many, many reasons. Um, but, but you know, I, I'm pleased that I did take it because you know, from what we all learn from from different experiences, and sometimes a difficult experience. 
can help you in um, you know in the future, which is what the way I look back at it all. And it did end in disappointment. But people like Stuart Downing, what he does do is that Stuart is a top guy anyway, great lad, fantastic player, great servant to Middlesbrough Football Club, uh, Aston Villa, Liverpool, England, and so on. You know, to get to, to get words from Stuart um, towards you know being complimented towards me as a coach is. Is is fantastic, really, and, and I take the things out of it, like like that, really, to um, you know, to to drive on from here and see what the future brings. Yes, and of course, uh, it it wasn't long after you left Middlesbrough that your your long partnership with Steve Bruce uh, started. I think at Hull City, and uh, Steve was very very successful at Hull as he had been at Birmingham City. And of course, uh, the two of you, along with Stephen Clements, you, you went along to work at, at Villa. And then, of course, you came to uh, Sheffield Wednesday. And of course, you came to Newcastle uh, after Rafa Benitez left. Now, you know, you, Steve, who I'm quite close to, and uh, I know Steve well, like the man, and he went in with his eyes open. You, you were very much aware at the time that... You, he wasn't a popular choice, that the owner, Mike Ashley, was was hated by the fans. How difficult was that period? Well, it was difficult, and for all the reasons that you've just you've just mentioned there, you know, it was a uh, a challenge when Steve um, initially said that he was he was going to take the job. Um, it, it was something that he always wanted to do. He's you know he's a Geordie at heart. Newcastle United is his club. It, um, I think I think what he does, it, it just shows you what Steve's all about. You know, as a player and as a manager, uh, he, he never duck a challenge, and uh, and I think he saw this as 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 one big challenge. But ultimately, he was um, he was so keen to, to to do it, you know, uh, and get on with with what what was ahead of us and deal with all the the negativity that, that we had a lot of um, mm. which, which wasn't easy for Steve as a manager it wasn't easy as a, as a, uh, a member of the coaching staff um, but for two seasons you know we finished in the middle of the Premier League with 45 44 whatever it was yes. so yes. you know in terms of you know what, what was expected from Newcastle United at that time was can you retain Premiership um you know, football and, and that ultimately that's what we did for two seasons. When, by this stage, the, the the coaching team or the management team of the three Steves, yourself, Steve Bruce and Steve Clemens, you you were so close. Was it automatic that you would follow Steve Bruce wherever he went? Um yeah, I think we had a really good relationship and, and, and also a good friendship. We've been together now for yeah. twelve years. I think Clement played with Steve at Birmingham. Their relationship yes. goes back longer. Than, than mine and Steve's. So, yeah, we, we kind of always felt that um, we would we would um, stay together as a coaching team. But then football changes and uh, Steve, we went to West Brom, which didn't work. Um, and then, obviously, I went up to Aberdeen and, and Clems took the Gillingham job. Um, so then things change for whatever reason, whether you're in work, you're out of work. Um so uh, he can never t- plan too far ahead in football. That's for certain. You know. Of course, and uh, of course, you, you worked with uh, another f- a former Middlesbrough player, Barry Robson, up at Aberdeen. Who I think uh, you know, Gordon Strachan's time at the Riverside isn't looked back on too fondly by fans. But 
uh, out of the, out of the players who came from north of the border, I think Bowie was undoubtedly the most successful. I, you know, I, I knew I knew how good he was, what a combative midfielder he was at at Celtic, and he he was outstanding. I thought in a, in a quite a mediocre Bowie side. He was uh, absolutely, uh, and he uh, Barry epitomised for me um, Scottish football. You know, with the passion and the energy and the commitment, he had all that. And he had, you know, he was a talented footballer to go along with that. So uh, when I got a call from Barry to come up and help him for a couple of games, then, uh, you know, just because the way he was, his personality, his character, he liked me as a coach. Um, I jumped on a plane and, and I've been in Aberdeen for the last 12 months. And a very nice place to live. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was really refreshing um, to go up there and, and you know, we, we did well really last season. We won seven games on the bounce and we qualified for you know the group stages of European football for the first time for many years um, and we got to a League Cup final this season then so you know I've got nothing but, but good things to say about Aberdeen Football Club it's a big club in Scotland it's well run by Dave Cormack and, and he's, he's bored and wish them uh, continued success for, for this season and beyond Can I can I go back to your time at Newcastle you were obviously the the takeover was it was omnipresent when it did happen did did you all know the writing was on the wall uh, yeah i think i think when things like that happen in you ultimately you look back in you know any football club um that generally that you know if there's change at the top there tends to be change all the way down so i think yeah i think we 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 probably felt that that, that would happen uh, which it did and uh, you know, you have to, again, you, you, you come away from it and say, well, look, great experience, really enjoyed the time, amazing football club, fantastic supporters. I mean, we're talking about the North East here. I've been really, really fortunate to be at, obviously, Gateshead, <laughs> um, um, as well as the uh, the top three, Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough. And yes. it's been a real honour, really, to, to be involved as a player or, or as a coach at all of those clubs and and, and bring, um, you know, reasonable success with, within that structure of that club and what they were, what was expected at the time. Now, I do remember about a fortnight after Eddie Howe took over, and of course, both yourself and, and, and Steve have been very generous in your praise of the work Eddie's done. But the, there was anger and frustration that your regime was, but was it painted by some as lazy, and that in contrast to the work ethic of 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 Eddie Howe, the the Bruce regime was more laissez-faire, easygoing, and of course, it, while no player comes out and uh, directly criticises, there, there there was that feeling that players felt they were undercoached. Uh, when when you yourself were there, how hurtful was that, and more specifically, how wrong was that perception? Yeah, I, th- I think that's disappointing because you know Steve, uh, myself, Stephen Clements, um, you know we're highly driven football people, and there's no way you know that any of us would allow um, our you know our focus, our work ethic, not to transfer across to. Um, to the players and to the and to the club ultimately to get the results, and I, and I think ultimately, um, if you look at you know the, the end game is you know what did we what did we achieve in the, in the two and a half seasons, um, and and well certainly for the two seasons was we, we finished 
in in mid table um, in mid table of the Premier League. So as far as I'm concerned, it was job done. So and there was a lot of work went into that. That doesn't just happen. Um, so you know, it, it it was a difficult period. It was a challenging time. I, I think you have a certain you have to have a certain mentality to come through it, uh, which mm-hmm. we did. And as as we spoke about earlier, in the end, then uh, when, when there's change, then the, you know the change of, of staff and management happens. But then, obviously, when Eddie come, comes in, then Eddie has his way. Um, every coach has a different way. I don't think any coach, whether you go down to the coach at Darlington, at Hartlepool, at Gateshead, they're all highly driven, motivation, motivated coaches because ultimately you have to put the work in because you know that if there's six, six defeats or five defeats, then you can lose your job. So I think, you know, there's... Um, you know, there's 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 not one bit of, of you know either of us think that for one minute we didn't put the work into um, you know to be successful or to be as successful as we could possibly be be at Newcastle United. Yeah. Now, I've, listen, never mind one show. I could do a series with you, Steve. You've got so <laughs> many stories from uh, all parts of this region. But I'm going to fast forward to the present day, and I ask all the guests on this show for the predictions for the weekend. Now. No, you don't get many predictions. Uh, last last week, of course, no one saw Middlesbrough winning at another of your former clubs, Leicester. No one saw Bournemouth drawing against Newcastle. But let, we, we, we'll be we'll be quick. But let let's look at the the evening game first, which will be on television. I'm sure you'll be sitting down to watch it as well. Arsenal against Newcastle. Arsenal have been on fire in the in the Premier League this season, although they. Uh, they came unstuck in Porto in, in the Champions League, while Newcastle, well, they're putting together an unbeaten run, even though they're not quite firing an all cylinders. So, how do you see that one going at the Emirates? Well, I, I think I've just seen earlier that Isak, there's a possibility he could be fit, and yes, they've been missing yes. a centre forward in number nine with Callum's injury. So, I think uh, if he's back in around it, uh, and and Arsenal being away with the travel and, and Porto and so on can have an effect on on uh, the the game at the weekend. So I, I yeah. think I'll go for a one-one draw. One-one draw. A one-one draw. Now Middlesbrough, uh, as I say, what a fantastic result last week at Leicester. But their home form in the league has been poor. They're playing a Plymouth side who lost in midweek. It should be three points but that's what I'm sure Leicester fans were saying seven days ago yeah exactly but I just think that the, the win at Leicester was such a a, a great three points and, I, and I've seen a little bit of Middlesbrough this season and I think they've got some good players I think Michael's mm-hmm. a terrific coach and I think they've been unlucky in certain games I've seen so I'd expect Middlesbrough to win a uh, home win for Middlesbrough uh, against Plymouth interesting now suddenly it's a strange one because you know they've they, They've lost two games at Huddersfield and Birmingham. Michael Beale's gone. Now, it's a horrible thing to say, but there will be more of a, let's say, a feel-good factor among the stadium-alike crowd when Swansea uh, uh, head to Wearside tomorrow because he was he was on a loo. He wasn't accepted by the fans. And even though results have been poor, Sunderland fans will be feeling a little better about uh, the club right now, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. And again, home win because I think... 
you know, the psychological feeling from the crowd transmits onto the field with the players. Yes. And yes. out with the tactical and, and, you know, analysis of the opposition or doing your prep for, for, you, for, for your team to, to go and win, then the, the biggest thing that, that transfers across to the players when they're playing, especially from kickoff with 40,000 supporters there, there tomorrow, I can't see anything else but, um, you know, a Sunderland win. Well, I hope you're right. It, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and uh, my goodness, I think we've known each other, it's over It's over 30 years now, whether you've been red and white or black and white and uh, I'm sure that Steve Agnew's time in football isn't over by a long way. Absolutely. Pleasure to speak to you, Ian. All the best, Steve. Take care. Thank you. Well, maybe, just maybe, Steve Agnew's next uh, move in football might be in green and white. The reason I say that, well, this week, a press conference at Blythe Spartans, their new owner, their new club chairman, is a townside-based businessman, Irfan Lequat of Winners Worldwide, whose mission is to make Blythe Spartans a football league club. Now, Dave, you and I, we were brought up in the days of five clubs uh, from this region in, mm. in the football league. Sadly, it's many years ago since we lost Darlington and they've got a long, long way back. Hartlepool, uh, well, they went down, they went up and then they've gone down again. But uh, they're doing fairly well under Kevin Phillips. Super Kev, yeah. And, and it'd be lovely to see them back in, in, a, in a year or two. But... But Blythe Spartans, the self-styled most famous non-league club in the world, they've got ambition. And uh, Irvin Liquat, he's he's appointed as sporting director at Croft Park. Stephen Howard, the former Hartlepool striker who had a pretty decent football league career uh, at Leicester and Luton. So it'd be very, very interesting. Wouldn't it be lovely if if we had another club in the northeast playing football league it would be it would be and obviously a, a lot of people of of my age sadly of our age ian will remember Bly yes. spartans the the famous fa cup run uh, where they got to the you know they really got to the sharp end of the fa cup um and 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 i'm sure that i'm assuming that's where they get their title of the the most famous uh, non-league side but i like Bly spartans i refereed You've in refereed the unibond there, yeah it was the mm. unibond league then uh, for a while and I love going to Croft Park and the atmosphere the fans are right on top of you they can be hostile certainly to match officials oh they they, they I tell you what they don't hold back at all but I used to love that the banter I used to have with the fans it was the days of John Charlton when he was in charge Jackson yes uh- and, yes, uh, that's right. Of yeah, course. and that's uh, and Jack used to come in and help the club out at the time as well with fundraising when John was there and and that sort of stuff. So I got to meet Jack there. Uh, loved it, absolutely loved it. Well, I remember as a kid actually going to St James's Park for that fifth round replay at uh, against Wrexham. The winners played Arsenal in the quarterfinals and uh, and Blythe uh, they lost two one, but they gave as good as they got. There were forty eight thousand at St James's Park that night. Yeah. And some of my happiest memories in, in in more recent years has been the Blythe Cup runs. I remember when they they won at Hartlepool on television, and then they played Bir- Birmingham at uh, Croft Park, and all the the northeast national media we went there. Fantastic game, 
and Robbie Dale, a Blythe Spartans legend, put Blythe 2-0 up at half-time. Sadly, they lost 3-2. I think Gary Roward was the manager of Birmingham at the time. But I love that ground. It, it there's, there's something... You know, there are some fine, fine North-East uh, non-league clubs. Spennymoor doing well. South Shields are buoyant. Hartlepool looks as if they're coming back. Sadly, Darlington looks as if they may be going down. But... Uh, you know, Blythe, I do believe they are the what they they arguably got more potential than any than anyone because they are such well, they're a great they sound a great name. They've got a wonderful kit, they've got a lovely ground and uh, they've got quite a famous football pedigree. Yeah. And it's certainly one to uh, you know, keep an eye on, watch watch the development and see how quickly they do make a move. That's right. Anyway, we'll we'll take a short break, and afterwards, I will be talking to uh, probably the most authoritative journalist on Sunderland Football Club, Phil Smith of the Sunderland Echo. It's been quite an eventful week for the club he covers. Black and white and red all over. He can talk football all day. Ian Murta. The red, the cat, and the tin. Well, when there's managerial upheaval at Sunderland. And let's face it, that seems to be every other week these days. You want to speak to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Well, I've got the main man. I've got Phil Smith, the Sunderland Echo's chief sports writer. And uh, be fascinated to hear what he said. It's been another another quiet week in uh, your journalistic life, Phil. It has, yeah. I mean, I suppose I'm sort of used to it by now. Um, you know, it doesn't come <laughs> I'm used to it. I've had 30 years of it, Phil. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, it was a kind of a strange one this week, to be fair, because normally when a manager goes, you move very quickly into a, a couple of weeks, really, of, of, of speculation. Mm. And, and obviously this one was slightly different in that, you know, to be fair to Sunderland, they at least were very decisive in appointing Mike Dodds until the end of the season. So I think that, you know, it's been a slightly strange week and it was obviously very, very busy, very intense to begin with. But, you know, I think especially because he's done the job before, there is a little bit of familiarity going into into tomorrow's game. Absolutely, and you know, Sunderland. I was my previous guest was Steve Agnew. We were talking about the fact that Sunderland they've lost their previous two games, and yet they'll they'll almost be a feel good factor at the stadium and light ahead of the the Swans game tomorrow. It's as if Sunderland fans they can at last breathe out because they haven't enjoyed the last few weeks, have they? Yeah, I think it's been a pretty miserable period. I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the season is really on a on a knife edge, really going into tomorrow. If you look at the table, they're, they're seven points off six, which is, you know, the target for the season. And after tomorrow's game, you've got a, run, a terrible run of fixtures, really. Norwich away, Leicester at home and Southampton away. So while I think there will be some positivity going into tomorrow's game, because I think everybody's kind of relieved that the, the Michael Beale chapter's done, and I think there's a lot of faith in Mike Dodds, you know, the mood could be very, very different this time tomorrow because if they haven't won the game, then they're, they're pretty major outsiders for the top six, I would have said. Absolutely. It's strange because, you know, those in the, in the know knew that Tony Mowbray, his position was always on thin ice, wasn't it? Because he didn't have the, share the same same view of the model that the uh, speakman and, uh, and the owner had. And, of course, there was disappointment when he left. He was a very popular figure. When the name Michael Beale first came out, there was, there was the, the general feeling I got was, oh, no, let that information be wrong, and it wasn't wrong. And Michael Beale came in, and he did nothing to, to, to 
to sort of throw away the, the scepticism about himself, did he, Phil? No, I think it was it was a strange one with Mowbray, as you said, because it, I think everybody felt it was a really sad day when he left because you had yes. someone that the fans really liked, a good communicator, the football had been excellent for the most part. But I think most people who, who followed the club pretty, pretty closely, and the vast majority of fans, I think there was an understanding that he wasn't particularly getting on with the ownership and that actually maybe, you know, given the fact that we knew his position had sort of been in doubt in the summer, you know, maybe it's best that you draw a line under it and you shake your hands and sort of say, thanks for the memories, let's go our separate ways. The problem then was, as you've kind of alluded to there, is that what we all expected was that the ownership would go and invest in what we felt like they wanted all along at a inverted commas, elite, young, up-and-coming, European coach. And at least that way you could sort of understand what it was they were trying to do. But the reality yes. is, you know, they, they, they messed the time up, really. They weren't able to get one of their, you know, really preferred candidates. And they backed themselves into a corner where they essentially had a choice between, you know, giving it to Mike Dodds until the end of the season or going with a, you know, inverted commas, safe pair of hands. And they didn't want to yes. lose Dodds in the long run. So they went with Beale, and, and unfortunately, you know, they, they they made a very bad call there because he, he wasn't a safe pair of hands. The the football got worse, and he, I think it's fair to say, he struggled with the the scrutiny and, and the intensity of the club. So I think a lot of it stems from the fact that whatever you make of Tony Mowbray, you know, I would say I was a huge fan of what he did, but they really made a mess of the time and 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 not being able to go out and get you know the candidate that I think they really wanted and we all expected they sort of backed themselves into a corner really and and that's how they ended up making a bad pick in my view yes uh, before we talk about Michael P let, let's just take time out uh, Phil and I'm sure Middlesbrough Sunderland uh, listeners and Newcastle listeners as well because Tony Mowbray he he was a northeast icon and let's let's wish him all the best he he's struggling with illness he's uh, going to take some uh, Time out of the game, and I think all of us want to see him back on back in the dugout at Birmingham City, don't we? Yeah, it was a, it was a huge shock um, earlier this week reading this news. Really, really upsetting, in fact, you know, because Absolutely. I think I for a few of, for a few of us who follow the club um, and had worked with him, Saturday Saturday gone was obviously the first chance we'd, we'd had to see him really since he'd left Sunderland. Yes. And, you know, football's a pretty ruthless business, isn't it? And it moves on very quickly. And, and although I was obviously gutted to see Sunderland lose because that's where you know my heart lies, if you like, you yes. know there was something nice to see that Tony had found another excellent job where the fans loved him, um, and to see his team in the second half, they were already beginning to look like a Tony Mowbray team. Yes. So I was so enthused to sort of see that for him on Saturday, and to obviously to get to see that news on Monday was was such a huge shock, and, and I feel like everybody kind of already knows this because it's so so much discussed but he, he truly is the best person you could meet in football you you meet a lot of people in football that you know you're not sure if you can trust um tony wasn't one of those he was you know as honest and upfront a person as you could ever meet and yeah i, I look forward to the day he's, he's back in the dugout doing what he does because there's there's nobody better and there's certainly nobody um kinder that you would meet in football Absolutely. I mean, I witnessed firsthand how fond you were, Phil, of Tony, and, and I can honestly say that you know I've I've covered uh, this region's football clubs for well over thirty years, and he is comfortably in the top uh, ten, top six even of of personalities I've enjoyed working with. But uh, so good luck, Tony, and we we want to see you back. L- let's talk, Michael Beale. I don't know, Phil, if you read a, a column by the. Uh, the Times Scottish correspondent uh, Michael Michael Grant, who's who's done a, an excellent uh, piece about Michael Beale. 
Now, of course, when Michael Beale came, none, none of us hated him. We didn't know a thing. We didn't know him, did we? But I, I find, I find what uh, what Michael Grant said summed, summed up his time at Rangers clearly. But it sums up his time at Sunderland as well. And uh, I'm quoting here. Fred's insist he is a decent man, and many players have talked about how influential and helpful he was to them. But he could be his own worst enemy, doing and saying things which rub people up the wrong way. And I think that happened at Sunday, didn't it? His silly, silly press conference about people don't like me because of my accent. And, you know, did he not know about Kevin Phillips, about Kevin Ball going further back, player of the... Uh, 20th century Charlie Hurley and then even last week uh, after the Huddersfield game I winced when I read his comments about this team will never win games by a big margin we need to learn to win narrowly well I'm sorry but I was sat in the stadium of light back in August September seeing Sunderland thrash Southampton 5-0 under Tony Mowbray playing some of the best football I've seen from the North East side in recent years and Michael Beale, he wasn't a bad person, but he just never convinced the Sunderland manager. I think the, the the thing that struck me most was that he seemed very, very, very sensitive to criticism. You always had the impression that he knew everything that was being said after every game, positive or negative. And I think, you know, we were talking about Tony Mowbray earlier, but I think you could apply it to not just any successful Sunderland manager, but any successful manager at a North East football club, really. They are. They have such a strength of conviction, and they're so almost unbothered by any external criticism. You know, Mowbray is an obvious example. Alex Neil was fantastic at it. Even going further back, you know, Sam Allardyce, people like that. They mm. they were people who had such absolute conviction in what they did, and, and they, weren't, they weren't skin, bothered. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. and they weren't bothered what anybody said. They didn't care if you didn't like the style of player or their formation or anything like that. Michael struck me as somebody who was very, very, very acute to that criticism. And I felt that that was why, you know, he struggled so much, particularly in press conferences, because he seemed to be almost riding the roller coaster with us, if if that makes sense. And I think you've got to have a real sort of balance, if you like, um, if you're going to manage a club of Sunderland size. And and let's be fair as well, the, the major issue is he took a side that had its flaws, but was still dominating most games and playing some really exciting football. And unfortunately, he went the other way. He tried to tighten things up. It didn't really work in any significant way, and it also took away from you know the the, the flair and and the fun that we all had watching that team for a long period of time. So it was it was let's be honest, it was a pretty pretty disastrous tenure, unfortunately. Um, I'm afraid so. I mean, uh, I, I'm the first manager I dealt with at Sunderland was might have been be before you were born, Phil. It was uh, Laurie McMenemy, albeit I think I only covered two or three of his games. But it was May- Dennis Smith was when I was in at the start. But really, when when you look at disastrous Sunderland managers, well, you know Mick Buxton. Oh, he did have the mitigating circumstances of having Kevin Keegan at Newcastle up the road, which was very difficult for mm-hmm. him. Howard Wilkinson never really worked either. Uh, David Moyes, well, I mean, David Moyes, we know it didn't work out at Sunderland, but he is a good manager. But really, Michael Beale, he's, well, he's got to be down there among the worst I, I, I've seen at, uh, on Wearside in, in over 35 years of covering the North East football. Yeah, I, it, it certainly has been the most sort of disastrous reign that I've covered if you'd like I mean I do have uh, listen I do have some sympathies with my a bit I, I spoke before about that 
expectation of the calibre of candidate that was going to come in to replace Tony Mowbray. It's not really Michael Beale's fault that he wasn't what anybody was expecting. And it wasn't an easy job. There's little other sort of factors to it as well. The fact that he came in entirely on his own, he didn't bring any coaching staff with him. That must I think have been you reflect hard, yes. on that. You reflect on that and think that must have been difficult, and especially, you know, was just sort of criticised him there for being maybe overly emotive in press conferences. Well, maybe you can understand that if he didn't have people around him he could trust and lean on. So, you know, I, I don't want to be overly harsh on him personally because I think it was a... It was a, the club, I think, handed him a difficult set of circumstances. But I, what I would certainly yes. say is that, listen, you, you're always you're always judged on the pitch. And there's managers who, you know, we were never convinced by at Sunderland, but who were able to stay longer than you expected because they got results. You know, Phil Parkinson is a classic example. He probably survived a year longer than anyone expected because for a time he was able to produce some good, you know, relative to the level at the time. Michael just never did that, and everything else stemmed from the fact that this team that had stuck with a little bit but was very very exciting and, and going places went backwards and you know some of the fans have watched a lot of football haven't they and, and they know they can see when a team is losing momentum and unfortunately that was happening very very quickly here and I think it, looking, looking at football it, uh, the bigger picture in football there are an awful lot of outstanding coaches who they do have a crack at uh, management realise it's not for them and they go back and, and thriving coaching again I mean my good friend John Carver you know he's he was a wonderful number two to Bobby Robson and to Alan Pardew it didn't work out for him as a short-term Newcastle manager and now he's uh, thriving against Steve Clark's number two in Scotland and of course Don Howe going way way back was uh yeah I think he had a, an unfortunate spell as manager of uh, of Arsenal but he was Bobby Robson's right-hand man at uh, at England and did very very well there. That I think there are plenty of examples of of coaches who think who have a crack at management, don't do it, but carry on doing very well in football. And let's hope for Michael Beale's sake that uh, he's. I don't think he'll get a decent manager's job for quite a long time. But you know maybe he will link up with Stephen Gerrard again. Who knows? Yeah, I think it goes both ways as well, doesn't it? I think there's from from his perspective and and maybe. A, you know, maybe he'll reflect and decide that coaching's for him rather than the intensity of being a manager or head coach. I think it probably applies to the club as well in terms of the club hierarchy of making these decisions, understanding that coaching on the training ground is one part of the job, you know, and it is an important part of the job, but it's not as important as leadership skills, as, you know, being able to manage players, being able to manage the emotional intensity of a club like Sunderland. And I think that's probably something they underestimated. I think maybe they took, for example, Tony Mowbray's ability to speak to supporters, to manage the dressing room, to sort of ride those highs and lows. I think they probably underestimated that. And I think they probably you know, misjudged how important that is. And I think that's maybe a lesson going forward that, yes, you want an exceptional coach who's at the cutting edge of your, of your modern sort of techniques and who can get buy-in from the players who expect that. But... It's it's not just about that, actually. There's a lot of... Even if, you know, the days of the all-powerful manager are, are long gone and probably never coming back, that doesn't mean that some of those skills aren't still relevant. And You know, I, I think that's maybe a, a big, big learning curve for, for Kirill Louis-Dreyfus. I think, I think you've summed it up very, very well there. And uh, Dreyfus, of course, in the recent... In, in the new series of the documentary, I think fans have, have heard him for the first time, really. And... I think he's genuine. I think he is 
ambitious for Sunderland. And I think uh, I think he's in he's his heart in the right place. Clearly, the club weren't prepared to match the personal terms of Will Still when they went in for him uh, at the end of last year. Will they go back for him now, and have they learned their lesson? I think it's very difficult to sort of to sort of know that. I think there's been a, a steep learning curve for Carroll in terms of you know, regardless of the ins and outs of the the Mowbray yes. decision, the, the the timing was wrong because if you if you move a manager on mid season and you have somebody that you want to bring in, you have to know that you're going to be able to do that. And I, as I went back to before, you back yourself in a corner if you're not able to do that. So do I think that they would potentially go back for Will Still in the summer? Definitely. You know, they should do, really, shouldn't they? If they thought he was I an agree. ideal candidate yes, two months so. ago, then you then you would hope he still would be. The one caveat I would say is, is that there are potentially going to be a, a number of sort of good options who become available in the summer because it's the same as players. It's a better time to do business. You've got people coming to the end of their contracts. They might be leaving a club for one reason or another. You have a much better choice, really. And that was why I think, you know, we keep coming back to the fact that, you know, sacking Tony in, in December was a really, really poor move because it limited what they could actually go and do. In the summer, it might be they decide they find someone better than Will Still. You know, and, and that's why I think they had to try and find a way, either be really, really firm in their convictions and make a change last summer, which would have been unpopular, but they could potentially have got who they really wanted, or leave it with a very, very safe pair of hands in Tony until the summer and then reflect then. And I think a lot of the problems we've had over the last six weeks really have, have stemmed from the fact that they really they, they messed up on the timing, I think. Yes, isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? I mean, of course, Graham Potter's uh, still available, but would a former Chelsea manager who would have been on an absolutely whopping salary, would Sunderland, they wouldn't be prepared to pay anything like that. But Sunderland, you know, well, I'm not going to say, I'm certainly not going to say if you you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. I've just said it, but... uh, Clearly, you know, they will have to spend big money if they want to get a manager who can bring the best out of this wonderfully talented squad. I think it's not just finances either. I, I think there's a few different aspects to it. We went, you know, we, we referred before Michael Bill coming in entirely on their own. You know, that stature of candidate they are referring to, a Graham Potter, you know, they're going to want to bring their own staff with them. Yes. Are they also going to be willing to defer entirely to a sport and director? You know, he probably hasn't worked at the same level as they have on recruitment. They're probably not. And, and you know, that's, that's, maybe that's not, you know, the worst thing in the world. You know, let's, let's be fair. For all the valid criticism, you know, the last 18 months, two years, I've seen Sunderland make pretty continuous progress. So I don't think we need to tear up the whole thing. I think it's just finding somebody who's really a, a, a better match for what they want, which clearly Tony Mowbray wasn't, but actually someone who has some of those kind of people skills and those communication skills. I, I don't I genuinely don't feel like I think maybe they've messed up this season. I think it's gonna be very difficult to get in the playoffs from here. But I, I genuinely feel like it's about tweaking what they do now. It's about showing a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more pragmatism. But I don't think there's any need to to sort of tear up the whole thing because they're you know they're still overachieving their budget and they're still moving the club in the right direction. So yeah, I think they've made some huge mistakes and there's an awful lot to reflect on. But, you know, if we're talking sort of the, the medium to long term, I, I still feel relatively upbeat about what it is they're trying to do. Yes, I, I concur with you. I, I think Sunderland is still a club 
which is relatively upwardly mobile, albeit having taken a few backward steps. But let, let, let's look at the present day and uh, be looking for your predictions. And I know you do keep a watchful eye on Newcastle and Middlesbrough as well. But first of all, briefly, Sunderland, can they win without Jack Clark against Swansea at the Stadium of tomorrow? Yeah, I expect them to win tomorrow. I, I think there'll be a pretty good reaction from the players. I think they like Mike Dodds. I think it's been a frustrating period. I think they probably realise that it's a little bit now or never. I think the atmosphere will be you know, quite powerful. I think it'll be very good. Agreed. So I do yes. think they'll be able to get over the line against the Swansea side, who you know, I think are very much in transition, aren't they, under their new head coach. So, yeah, I, I do really have to say I, I do really expect someone to win tomorrow. The, Yes, I'd agree. I'd love yeah, to see yeah. Chris I'm Rigg. I'm a lot, lot more apprehensive about Yeah, I'll, I'm saying I'd love to see Chris Rigg being given a little more than 10 minutes because, you know, he is one of the, the country's outstanding young prospects and uh, every time he's he's been given a run out, he's never let the club down and, yeah, it'd be lovely to see him start, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's in the post, really. I think if you look at Sunderland don't have a huge amount of sort of midfield depth. It wasn't an area that they particularly recruited in January. They brought Callum Styles in, but I think he'll play off the left a lot. So yeah, I, I don't think you can expect Equa, Bellingham, Neil to play sort of, you know, four high intensity games in ten games in ten days. So I think Rig will will have to come in. I, I agree with you. I think he's done more than enough in his sort of brief cameos to suggest that that he's capable of making the step up in it. Listen, he, he has to play games. That's why he, that's why he stayed here. He could have gone to any club in the country, any club in the Premier League last summer. Yes. He decided to stay at Sunderland on the, basically on you know the idea that he would get senior football, and you know, obviously you have to earn it, but at the same time it has to go the other way as well. And and so I think at some stage it's really important that Sunderland sort of do make good and and give him that opportunity to shine ahead of next season. Yes, fingers crossed. He's he's given a. a... A good uh, a few outings in, in the remaining weeks. Middlesbrough. Now, I was joking with Steve Agnew earlier that Middlesbrough contemplating writing to the Football League asking if they could play Leicester City every week because they've done a double over the Championship's outstanding side. Uh, they're playing uh, Plymouth tomorrow. Uh, now, you've seen a fair bit of, of Middlesbrough this season. They they are a very uh, they're a Jekyll and Hyde side, effectively, aren't they? Are they going to be Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde against Plymouth tomorrow? I, th- I think they'll beat Plymouth. I, from what I've seen them, I think they're very, very similar to Sunderland. I think they're a well-coached side. I think they've got a lot of talent, but they don't really have that killer instinct in the final third. And I actually think it doesn't really surprise me that they do well against the better teams because I actually think they, they enjoy open games that play from end to end. I think it's when they have to break down you know, a really stubborn defence and they don't have that number nine, if you like. I think they have a lot of similar issues to, to Sunderland. But... Plymouth are a really, really open side. They're probably the most attacking team in the bottom half of the championship, I would suggest. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that might be a game that really suits Middlesbrough. I expect them to go and win that one. I would agree with you, Phil. I've got a feeling that uh, Sunderland and Middlesbrough will just miss out, unfortunately, in the top six this season. Although I think they might uh, both win this weekend. You know, I, if, if you ask me at this moment, at mid-February, I think we'll finish 7th and 8th in the table. Don't ask me which way around. But uh, New, Newcastle United, uh, strange, isn't it? Because a few a few weeks ago, everyone was saying, well, Newcastle, they're all right at St. James's Park. That, that fortress is fine. But away from home, they're a little bit homesick. And it, it's turned, you know, they failed to beat 
Bournemouth, they failed to beat Luton, they lost against Nottingham Forest, and yet they got an outstanding win at Aston Villa. And of course, their revival, if that's what you call it, because they are undefeated in five games, started off at the Stadium Alight. Uh, they're playing Arsenal tomorrow, free scoring, at least in domestic football. Can you see them winning this game? I find it really difficult to see them winning that way. I, I don't see a huge amount of Newcastle. What is very difficult for me to get my head around from from my perspective is how a team that seemed so defensively resilient last season can can be so open, you know, conceding mm. the the number of goals they have to teams like Nottingham Forest and Luton. And, you know, maybe, maybe the sort of openness of the game will suit them. Maybe it will enable them to be a real threat on the counter. But from what I've seen of Arsenal recently and looking at Newcastle's recent defensive record, that looks like a really tough game for them. But but we'll see. You know, they're, they're capable of surprising, that's for sure. Yes, I, I would agree. I, if if you ask me, I'm saying it wins for Sunderland and Middlesbrough and I think Arsenal would be too good for Newcastle. But of course, Newcastle, they're playing uh, Blackburn in the FA Cup as well. And who knows, we might have a, another cup run, another side in the last eight of a, one of our major cup competitions next week. So... Uh, Thank you very much, Phil. It's been wonderful and uh, I definitely got the best qualified man to talk about the latest uh, Sunderland crisis. So until next week when maybe we'll have smoother waters. Good night. Right across the northeast, the red, the two.